I think anyone who has a long enough term view, if you're thinking about things 10 years from now, you can't not think about Africa. You can't not think about where is the middle class going to be and where is what are the demographic and, and population trends. I've had the opportunity to meet amazing entrepreneurs and operators building companies. And many times they need infrastructure like blockchains to build on top of because there aren't alternatives. And so we're really excited to see how we can support the ecosystem and how these technologies are used across the continent. Hello and welcome to Crypto at Scale. I'm Justin Norman. My co-host, Guerra Kiwana, and I are of the belief that Africa is home to market conditions that will enable widespread mainstream crypto adoption and that many of the most immediate and meaningful crypto use cases will happen on the continent. We're not the only ones who think that. And in today's episode, we're joined by two friends from outside of the continent who are both deeply interested in the African crypto ecosystem, for many of the same reasons that Guerra and I are. Today's guests are Tori Samples, Senior Product Manager at Stellar Development Foundation, and Kai Sheffield, the Head of Crypto at Visa. If you enjoyed this episode of Crypto at Scale, please subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, and share with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. Before we dive in, just a reminder, the views or opinions of our guests are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice, and please do your own research. This episode of Crypto at Scale is brought to you by Ripple. Anyone who sent money across borders to or within Africa knows how cumbersome, expensive, and slow the process can be. When it comes to remittances, Sub-Saharan Africa remains the most expensive region to send money to. And for businesses, trapped capital, slow settlements, and high failure rates pose major challenges. The current financial infrastructure just doesn't work very well for the modern global economy. Ripple believes that crypto-enabled payments can help. Ripple's payment solution, on-demand liquidity, enables organizations to settle global payments in real time, at a fraction of the cost, and without tying up working capital and destination accounts. By leveraging the digital asset XRP as a bridge currency, funds can be sent and received in local currency on either side of a transaction. And across Africa, Ripple is partnering with local financial institutions and fintechs to bring the benefits of better cross-border remittances to the region. To learn more and get in contact with the Ripple team, head over to ripple.com. Tori, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your work at Stellar and the role that your past experience in African fintech has played in, in your journey into where you are today. Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm Tori Samples, and I'm in product at Stellar, at the Stellar Development Foundation, leading our humanitarian work and bulk payments, which is obviously a natural pairing, but it, it actually makes sense. Organizations need to pay individuals around the world every day, whether that's for refugee assistance in emergency settings or gig workers or payroll. And the Stellar blockchain helps organizations to do that at scale. Instantly, cheaply, transparently, all that good stuff with money that comes in a stable form and can be cashed out globally. The bulk payments tool that I work on is called the Stellar Disbursement Platform, which can be used for any type of bulk payments. And the humanitarian program on top of that is Stellar Aid Assist, which has been used by organizations like the UNHCR in Ukraine to send assistance to refugees. With regard to Africa, I've had a long personal history with Africa going back most of my life, even to when I was a very young kid. I've been involved with resettled refugee communities from Africa and the U.S. for many years. I've lived in Tanzania a couple of times short term and have always had various things that have kept me engaged with the continent. And then in 2018, I started a company called Leaf Global Fintech that was originally meant to help refugees and migrants to safely store and transport their assets across borders. That became a general purpose digital wallet 
that operated on both smartphones and non-smartphones and was built on the Stellar blockchain. We were actually the first to offer blockchain-based services to people without smartphones through USSD. And I was based in Rwanda for several years, leading our team there until we got acquired by a U.S. company, publicly traded U.S. company called IDT last year. And so I joined them and transitioned things over before coming to SDF. Kai, good to have you here as well. I think Visa needs no introduction, but could you give us a little bit of a summary about the work that you're doing uh, specifically in crypto with Visa and why you in particular have had a keen eye on Africa? Sure. It's, it's great to be here. And when we think about crypto at Visa, we always start by saying crypto isn't just one thing. We see it as like a, a collection of technologies that have many different use cases and are you know, evolving at a, a pretty rapid rate. And so we really look at it just objectively as if these new technologies like public blockchains, advanced cryptography, distributed systems, how can we apply them to our existing products and to our existing network in, in VisaNet? And then what can we build on top of these technologies outside of our network? You know, I think we're, we're really fortunate to be able to take a, a very long-term view. We actually started the, the crypto team back in the last bear market, late 2018, early 2019. We tend to prefer bear markets in crypto winters. There's just less noise and less distraction. You can actually focus on the technology and, and how it can be applied. And so as we think about what impact can these technologies have over the next 10 years, and how will they be used and applied within the payments ecosystem? You know, we really start with the fact that in markets today where you can walk in with an iPhone and use Apple Pay and buy your coffee any place in the United States, it's, it's, there's not really a problem to be solved. Payments work very well, but there's a big part of the world that doesn't have many of those opportunities and the payment infrastructure just isn't as mature. And so we think that there's a path for blockchains to play an important role in have emerging economies be able to leapfrog and embrace and, and utilize these as, as, as new modern technologies for payments and financial services. And so I think anyone who has a long enough term view, you know, if you're thinking about things 10 years from now, you can't not think about Africa. You can't not think about where is the middle class going to be and where is what are the demographic and, and population trends. So I've actually never been to the continent. I might be the only person on this show who, who's literally never been there. It's, it's one of the top places on my list that I, I hope to travel to soon. But I've had the opportunity to meet amazing entrepreneurs and operators building companies and just incredibly impressed by the talent and the motivation and what people are building. And many times they need infrastructure like blockchains to build on top of because there aren't alternatives. And so we're really excited to see how we can support the ecosystem and, and how these technologies are used across the continent. I think that trip is long overdue now. It is, it is. I don't, so I don't travel a lot in general. So it's not like I'm going all over the world. I'm just not going to, to the continent. It's the next major trip I make, we'll, we'll have to all, all go together. So I'd be remiss if we didn't look to history to inform future relationships between the global north and Africa specifically. So historically, this relationship has been characterized by significant imbalances driven by exploitation 
Although inequalities still persist between these regions, advancements in technology, education, and the emergence of successful pan-African initiatives have helped to rebalance the scales. So we're seeing a new scramble for Africa. So with crypto innovators taking steps to engage and contribute, uh, go after the opportunity that exists on the continent. So this time, the energy for this scramble for Africa is less about extraction and more about collaboration toward a shared vision of driving growth for the next generation of adoption, but also really for the, the next generation of growth of, of the continent. So Kai, let's start with you. Visa, Visa have recently pledged to invest a billion dollars in Africa over five years. Can you talk more about this and, and, and what your thoughts are on, on, on how, how this is going? Yeah, so we made this pledge in late 2022, and it was really an important moment and commitment step for Visa in Africa. And these investments are, are going to be focused on a variety of things around the payments ecosystem from Visa Direct and Tap to Phone and many new technologies that we're exploring and experimenting. Uh, but it's also going to include a, a big focus on expanding financial inclusion, helping small and, and women-led businesses, and really strengthening our, our local presence. So I recognize that sitting in, in San Francisco, I can't understand what's happening on the ground and, and build products that are going to help people's lives. And so we need to have talent that we can work with in the region. And so we set up a, a Sub-Saharan Africa innovation studio in Nairobi. We have a the She's Next grant program in, in Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, Morocco, and Egypt. And then we're setting up more local operations. And so we just, we opened an office in Democratic Republic of Congo, one in Ethiopia. And so we recognize as a company, again, as, as we think about our, our future and over the next decade, there's a huge opportunity and, and role for us to play. And we think if, if we're successful, there's both, it's a big business opportunity. It's a big opportunity to help bring more people into digital payments and, and improve lives. So yeah, very deliberate attention being paid to to the continent of Africa and Visa, large, large player in the fintech payment space, and with also a lot to lose, really. Historically, Visa has been so card focused in, in Africa, where card penetration and even card acceptance is still quite low. It's really cool to see that, that Visa obviously is continuing this, this DNA that you guys have of, of financial services innovation. Crypto has a, has a, has a role to play. So, Tori, we're going to come to you. So your background in African fintech and your current role at a layer one blockchain foundation shows a clear Venn diagram that puts you in a rare position to uniquely understand the journey of financial inclusion and what role L1s can play in this space as well. So what kinds of conversations are you having regarding Africa right now? Well, thankfully, I think we've mostly moved beyond the narrative of Africa being a taker or a receiver of resources from other parts of the world. Africa is generative and has collectively started to take care of its own in the crypto space. And that makes sense, right? So Africans are best positioned to know what Africans need. I'm thankful that I get to come alongside and build interesting products that enable people to achieve or at least try to achieve their full potential. My journey is definitely one of learning, by no means an expert, but by immersing myself and my life in the day-to-day -day experiences of my users, I can translate that to other parts of the world. There's still a huge gap. I, I talk a lot about the differences between what's on paper and reality, kind of going both directions. <laughs> People in the West don't have a lot of direct experience with Africa, by and large, generalizing here. And so they rely on what they see, which is usually in reports or on websites, and those aren't always accurate and things change quickly. 
And so I do a lot of explaining. One that came that, one that came up recently was around the idea of financial access. A very well-respected institution that I work with was saying that, well, not that I work for it directly, but that we work with as a partner, was saying that pretty much all East Africans are financially included because mobile money is available in those markets. And for anyone who has lived it, that doesn't touch what makes mobile money hard or inaccessible to some, which is an ID to get an account set up, high peer-to-peer transaction fees, at least outside of Kenya, consistent access to a charged phone. And so availability doesn't touch day-to-day use. If financial inclusion is made up of financial access, usage, and quality, you need all of those. And a service being available doesn't mean that it's being used effectively. There's also there's this narrative that I've seen lately that all the good African opportunities have already been seized. And I vehemently disagree with that. Go walk around on any given street and you'll see that there's still plenty of opportunity to go around and that current fintech and blockchain offerings still aren't meeting the day-to-day needs of many people across the continent. My, my personal opinion, I'll say, is that savings are sexy, no matter how they're built or where they're stored. Crypto can obviously play a huge role in that, especially in opening up access to global stable coins. Savings, generally, are what make us resilient and allow us to make life better for ourselves and our families. And savings are also where we see people's creativity naturally on display. And so I personally don't care whether people keep their savings in a bank or not, because that might not always be the best option for them. But our job as financial services professionals is to enable people with choice, right? To allow them to access their money immediately, safely, conveniently, and equip them with options to protect and grow their wealth over time. That principle starts to overlap with like earned wage access, save now, buy later, fractional investment, all sorts of things, many of which you can facilitate with a blockchain. There's unfortunately no way around financial shocks and the financial burdens of supporting families and communities. But my hope for Africa is that the majority of people in the coming years can get beyond thinking about tomorrow and start capitalizing on wealth building practices that have made the rich very rich across the world. And especially using new technology to leapfrog and reduce access inequalities. You mentioned that you're going to be traveling across the continent very soon. Can you give us a high level of what you're most interested in, what kinds of conversations you're interested in engaging in, what you're looking to, to, to debunk or learn while you're there? So I'll be there specifically to attend a couple events, one in Kenya, one in Rwanda. But my personal excitement is all around the conversations that I get to have with builders, with users, with legacy financial institutions to figure out what is keeping them from leveraging this technology that has been around for a while, but isn't exactly widespread. And of course, you know, my I, I work for the Stellar Development Foundation. My interest is in seeing people utilize the Stellar network. But just generally, I feel like there's a gap still between what could be and what is. And that's what I want to learn more about. We should actually, Kai, ask you that same follow-up question, even though you talked about having not traveled to the continent before, you know, you mentioned having a lot of questions to Africans across the continent. So what are the sorts of things that are interesting to you? We're going we're gonna to talk about your personal interest in NFTs in a minute, so maybe don't answer that. But in general, uh, some other things that are interesting to you about the responses you're getting and the conversations you're having on the continent. Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting things that we've seen is the demand for stable coins and the type of activity of developers building products around them. And so when we look at it, stable coins today, if you're in the United States and you only make domestic payments, why, why would you need a dollar on a blockchain? Payments work pretty well, but there are people who would much rather have dollars than have a local currency 
that has been inflating or that's not reliable or that they don't trust. And so I think in many ways, we've seen stablecoins become a way to supply this very large global demand for dollars. And it's pretty difficult to get dollar-based bank accounts in many markets. And some consumers don't trust the, the local banks. And you might have to have certain limits or higher fees. And so just being able for anyone across the world to choose what currency they want to hold and to be able to hold $100 in a self-custodial wallet, we think is something that's that's super powerful. And then we look at it as it's it's a new type of a banking as a service type of technology. So a lot of fintech in the United States and, and in a number of developed markets, they've it's really been interfaces that have been built on top of banks. They've been usually well-funded entrepreneurs that have a history of success that could go raise money and then go partner with a bank and build an interface on top of it. But that doesn't really work if you're three people and you're 18 years old and you're talented developers. It's pretty hard to, to go in and convince a bank to let you build on top of them. And so we're finding that there's just this, particularly in, in markets like Nigeria and in and, and areas like Lagos, there's a ton of developer talent really, really amazing, ambitious developers, but they can't just go and build on top of a bank. And so they look at blockchains and the APIs that blockchains offer as infrastructure that they can build on top of. And so we think the barrier to entry to building new financial products is going to get lower and lower. And so we we think that that's, that's great for the world if you can have talented people be able to create products that you don't even have to know blockchains are being used behind the scenes. It might look and feel like Venmo, but it's more accessible to be built and operated by people in the markets that are there to serve the, the customers next to them. And so I think that's been the first thing that's, that's really stood out is the developer ecosystem and the demand for stablecoins. There, there's a couple of themes that come up, right? Permissionless, borderless, accessibility, all, all of these things that, that we talk a lot about in the, in the global context. Tori, I want to ask you about that because you've done a lot of work with refugees, both in your prior role and then currently at Stellar. I know that there's a program to help facilitate cash transfers to the Ukraine, for example. You talked a little bit earlier also about this idea of financial inclusion and the challenges with regards to the lack of identity infrastructure. And so this idea about leveraging public blockchains and, and new payments rails to create opportunities to facilitate financial inclusion, for example, in environments of scarcity, right, or with refugees or, 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 or an environment like that. Can you talk a little bit about some of those pilots and how, for example, some of the lessons from what Stellar's doing in Ukraine can map well to the African context? So I should, I should caveat that SDF builds products and releases them open source so that anybody can use them. The pilots that have gone live with Stellar Aid Assist and the Stellar Disbursement Platform or that have been publicized have been conducted by the UNHCR and the International Rescue Committee, IRC. But it's, it's their money being dispersed in those cash transfers. They're the ones who are actually running those tools, which is incredible if you think about it, that the UN, this very legacy institution, UNHCR, is able to tap into the power of this new technology and use it to benefit people all around the world. I think that's amazing. And it, and it doesn't have to be run through an organization like SDF. It's a decentralized technology and we're seeing the power being put, the agency being put into the people who are actually the experts on this. And so I, I think that's great overall. I would say that the, the lessons that kind of map to the African context, the overall one is just make better products for the senders and receivers of funds. 
so that the inefficiencies of the legacy financial system no longer disproportionately affect people working in emerging markets. That's been the case over time. That's why we can say that payments aren't really an issue in the U.S. anymore, but they still are all over the world. With the Stellar Disbursement Platform, the SDP, the UNHCR has been public about its use of it in Ukraine, but we actually built it to be used in any geography. And that's for any time an organization needs to send money to multiple people at once. We've seen so far that the user experience for the receivers of funds is critical. That experience of being able to easily be invited to an easy to use digital wallet with minimal setup and no understanding of blockchain required, that is a viable path into the world of crypto for most people. Cash transfer programs are, will continue to benefit from this technology and continued use by UNHCR and others, but that isn't the only use case. And so I think a lot about Uber drivers in Kenya that shouldn't have to wait months to be paid I'm thinking about government programs that need to ensure that every shilling or franc or whatever reaches its intended destination with transparency and efficiency. I'm thinking about multinational companies that need to pay people, pay their staff in various countries around the continent. The Stellar Disbursement Platform does all of that. And all of those transactions are written to the Stellar blockchain, which obviously starts to tap into those fast, cheap, transparent, accessible, all of those great things. But from what we've seen in Ukraine and elsewhere, overall, again, we just we need to make the crypto world accessible with tools and technologies that people already have, and it needs to be interoperable with systems that they already use. That's what's going to make it successful. You have to layer onto existing patterns in people's lives. That's one general just product principle, right? But it especially applies, I think, for crypto and blockchain. We have to keep that product mindset. My favorite thing personally, just look at people and how they pay for electricity. Make that a ramp into and out of digital assets. That's going to change the world. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Tori. And Kai, coming back to you, I think Tori just talked about a, a, a sort of wide variety of use cases of crypto. And one use case in the Web3 context in particular that you've been very vocal about is, is NFTs. And we talk a lot at Crypto at Scale on the flip about African creatives and sort of the opportunity to, to build up those industries in the context of comparative advantages for the continent. So can you talk a little bit more about that, why you have such an affinity for them and you know, in the context, again, of this idea of permissionless, borderless, what that means for Africans in particular, in your view. Yeah, so I've been excited about NFTs for a few years now, and, and we've been closely following and, and engaging with communities here at, at Visa. I think we've kind of started with this notion of creators are kind of the next small businesses. They're just digital small businesses. And if you look at what are young people going to do or want to do to, to make a living, many of them are spending a lot of time on the internet. They're creating, whether it's music or art or content. There's so many different aspects of it. But I think too often people think about small businesses just as brick and mortar mom and pop shops. And so we like to think about small businesses as individuals that are just trying to make a living. And so if you're a talented creator, and, and we think talent is distributed all over the world, so it's not that you have all the talent is in the United States. In fact, I think there's so many amazing creators who are creating art and music. And if you look at Afrobeats and, and how globally popular some of the, the content and music is, is becoming, the question is, how can you monetize it and make a living through it? And I think historically, the main monetization for the creator economy has been advertising revenue. So it's been you... You are trying to get eyeballs or, or views, and, and then you, you get paid a small amount of money per that. 
by a large social media platform. And uh, I think it was actually one of one of your earlier shows and, and hearing you interview some creators and say, wait a minute, if you're a really popular creator in Nigeria, you're not going to make as much in terms of advertising revenue as a popular creator in the United States because advertisers are willing to pay less because the eyeballs are willing to spend less. And so it's just, it's it's not the best monetization to enable the middle class of creators. It kind of skews to either you're Mr. Beast and you have billions of eyeballs and you get paid a lot or you only have a few and you can't make a living. And so we would like to see the creator economy become more commerce based where people can actually sell goods instead of just trying to, to sell attention. And it's hard to sell physical goods to a global audience because then you have to deal with distribution. And how would you ship physical art from a creator in Rwanda to my house in Menlo Park? It's, it's, it's just very cost prohibitive to be able to do. And so we see blockchains as just these rails that can distribute and deliver digital goods to any blockchain address. And so your blockchain address becomes like a shipping address. And so now if someone anywhere in the world wants to buy digital art or digital music, if they want to buy a music NFT, they can get access. It doesn't make a difference whether you're in Nigeria or whether you're in California, where that's actually coming from. And so I think that there's a huge opportunity to lower the barrier to entry for creators, in particularly the middle class of creators, to make a living through finding people who are excited about their work and being able to sell a product, a good, to those people that can be delivered instantly across the world. And I think that opens up a lot of different possibilities. And so I'm just really excited about how culture can be turned into really amazing, unique digital goods and then distributed. So I've been collecting NFTs for several years now, and uh, we started the Visa Creator Program. We have an amazing artist, Gus Sarkody in Ghana, who's a, a photographer who's been doing really interesting work. We've been kind of helping, advising on ways that he can mint NFTs and, and distribute that work. And so we think the creator economy is not going away. It's going to be a, a major place that people make a living. And in fact, it's going to be an on-ramp for crypto, where if you get paid, if you are able to sell a good and you get paid in a stable coin or in a, a cryptocurrency, that might be one of the easier on-ramps for people to get into these digital economies versus having to take existing fiat and go and find some way to convert it into crypto. Just as a, a follow-up question, I think I want to ask both of you this question. We talked a little bit about the, the paradigms from a technology perspective of what blockchain technology allows your respective organizations to do. But then you, know, you just talked about it a little bit, Kai, with respect to business model, right? So moving from an advertising-based business model to a commerce-based business model. So how do, do, do you guys either individually or your organizations think about the opportunities to leverage new business models that are made possible by public blockchains? And perhaps in the context of fintech in particular, where we always talk about fees, right? Are fees going to go to zero for payments? And that's a big question in the mobile money context or in the African fintech context. Do you think about that business model question in a, in a different way in the, in the crypto context? There's something there. I don't know the answer, right? So there are a lot of things that I think are being explored right now, but we have yet to figure out what's going to stick. And that's okay. That's a natural learning cycle. I think that we've definitely seen as, as access opens up to global stablecoin markets and there are 
seamless, more seamless ways to get money in and out of the digital economy, it, it does open up opportunities, whether that's at an individual level for creators or a more institutional level. I love the creativity that I see in different forms of payments models, whether it's buying now, paying later, saving now, buying later, all, all sorts of things. But I, I think that it's going to look a little bit different in every market, probably. There's no one answer that is going to, that's going to dominate business models for everyone everywhere, right? It, it, so much of it is dependent upon that local context and local purchasing habits, comfort with technology, all of that. So that's a very long way of saying, I don't know, but I'm excited to see. The way that, that I like to think about it is, you know, we kind of go all the way back to Visa has this really rich, unique history. We've been around for you know, 60 years now. And so when Visa was started in the late 60s, the original vision and mission was to be the premier system for value exchange. And so it was a, so much grander than just, we're not just a card network for consumer to merchant payments. There are many different types of value exchange that are going to exist. And our goal is how do we create value and, and participate in that value exchange and, and help people be able to benefit from it. And so when I look at blockchains, I look at blockchains as like general purpose systems for value exchange, where there are many different types of transactions that run on blockchains. There are stablecoin payments that are B2B and P2P and they're actually, we don't see that many that are consumer to merchant yet. There are NFT mints, people creating a digital good, people transferring a digital good. There are DeFi loans, there are governance votes. There are all these different types of value exchange. And so if you think about Visa's overall addressable market as just consumer to merchant payments using a card, that's one thing. If you think about all of these new forms of value exchange that many of them didn't even exist. Creating a digital good, that wasn't a transaction. <laughs> there was no transaction that needed to be processed. There were no fraud tools that you needed when you created a digital good. So we think that there are going to be a lot of different roles that we can play, both at the infrastructure layer, as well as value-add services, if our clients between merchants, banks, fintechs, and consumers are going to want to interact with these networks. How do they, How can they do that in a safe, secure, and and reliable way. And there are going to be all these use cases that we can't even imagine, but they're all going to rely on this kind of shared infrastructure of how a blockchain operates and processes transactions. All right. So let's look toward a possible future for crypto at scale in Africa. There's obvious low-hanging fruit opportunities in this scramble that's going on, the scramble for Africa, with a number of global companies directing attention to the opportunities on the continent and the, the growing scene of ambitious homegrown problem solvers. Tori, who do you think is poised to make a big impact? So, and, and what role do partnerships play in driving this impact? Well, there, there are a few different answers, right? So I'm, I'm a payments girl at heart. I think anyone who's working on micropayments, removing the friction that we still see cross-border, tackling merchant acceptance, all that, poise well. Still a lot of innovation to come that can help people generate and retain wealth that's lost in the process of moving it. Look a little broader, anything that improves MSME resilience, I'm, I'm also keen on. I think MSMEs are the backbone of developing economies, but they often get wiped out due to unforeseen challenges. And so insurance digital tools, training, all of that can help, including a lot of blockchain-based products. But honestly, I think the uh, the organizations that could make the biggest impact 
are those that are either currently disincentivized from doing that or, or that typically move the slowest. Without naming names, M&Os, Pan-African banks, remittance companies with physical agent locations. Africa leans towards formality and respect for institutions, at least in my experience. And so that means that those larger companies that are established are going to be taken seriously in a way that startups just aren't maybe outside of Nigeria, because I am not arrogant enough to speak for Nigeria ever. <laughs> but I think that it's, it's fair to say that those partnerships with large established companies still play an outsized role for new and innovative companies in Africa. And so I would love to see those underutilized assets in sitting in large companies applied towards new technologies and business models. Anyone with a distribution network across Africa could be a potential game changer in fintech still. doesn't even have to be a fintech company. So I'm, I think that that partnership is still key. When I think about crypto and crypto at scale, I think that it's going to look like choice. It has to, right? Like people having multiple options in terms of digital assets, multiple ways of accessing those assets, whether that's different wallet apps, uh, USSD, savings groups, offline cards, or, or something else that we, don't, we haven't even thought of yet. But they've got to have optionality for what they do with that value so that they can provide for their needs, pay anyone anywhere, send and receive with whoever they need to and save and grow their wealth over time. That can't happen without L1s, TradFi institutions, on and off ramps, wallets, asset issuers, et cetera, all coming together and partnering to make that a reality. That's, I love that. I, I the, the fact that you just, you've sh you shouted out these slower moving entities like MNOs, which are mobile network operators and banks. These are probably the ones who are most crypto averse, who are most just don't want to touch it. Maybe there's an intern in, in the HQ somewhere banging on about crypto, but the head of compliance is just shutting it down completely, right? So it's going to take these kinds of partnerships, I guess, and also like established fintechs or even innovative companies to, to, to kind of guide them along that journey. And yeah, and I think Visa and even MFS Africa, sorry to give ourselves shout outs. I think we have a, we have a, we have a responsibility to, to kind of handhold these, these entities and yeah, I'm pretty excited about, about what that would look like. So Kai, what do you think the future of the African crypto ecosystem will look and feel like? And, and I'd also like to follow that up with, with asking you to tie that in with maybe juxtaposing it to what the future of the American crypto ecosystem will look like. So first, completely agree with, with Tori's comments. You have to have bottoms up organic innovation from fintechs and developers in addition to top-down established institutions coming into the space. And I think to date, it's been mostly bottoms up and kind of these parallel ecosystems where that are interesting and they're innovations, but it's not something that mainstream consumers are comfortable using. And and I think it's, it's really just going to take time. We hope that Visa can become a bridge where we play a, a, a unique role and that we spend in our days talking to innovative you know, small fintechs and DeFi protocols and layer ones. And then we go and talk to the largest banks and the largest MNOs. And so we want to be a resource that can help them, again, understand this as a technology. I think people get way too emotional about crypto. They hear crypto and they're like, oh, crypto. Versus just people don't get emotional about cloud computing. They don't get as emotional about AI. Now they're getting more emotional about AI. And so I feel like that's, that's a, it's a little different. And so just to, to kind of take a step back and say there are a number of emerging technologies that show promise for different innovations and in payments financial services. And it's going to require large institutions that have the distribution and have trust 
to commercialize many of them. And they'll have to do that in partnership and learning from smaller companies that are always going to lead the way. And I think part of it is for blockchains to be successful, most people should never have to know what a blockchain is. And I think today we're at a point in the industry where pretty much every crypto wallet or every everything that uses a blockchain, you know it uses a blockchain. And it's many times it's like that's what's advertised. It's a crypto wallet. You want to trade crypto. Speculation is still one of the main use cases. I think we're finally getting to the point where the infrastructure is maturing enough where you can start to build products that you don't have to explain anything about a blockchain or a cryptographic key. You just give someone an app, you give them a wallet, you give them a product, and you say, hey, use this to send someone money. And the technology is abstracted away behind the scenes. And we don't think anyone should have any more brand affinity for a blockchain protocol than they should for an internet protocol. It should just work. And I think that if you can combine large trusted institutions with distribution, commercializing these technologies, but abstracting them away they could start to power real products and services without people even knowing what they are. And I think that's a win. That's a win for crypto. And too often we focus on trying to convince people to make an explicit choice that they are either into crypto or not into crypto, which I think is just most people don't care. They want a product that that can benefit their lives. And so I think that they're, from a payments perspective, there's so much more opportunity in emerging markets and, and across the African continent than there is in the United States. And I think in the United States, there are there are payment flows, large value, cross-border B2B. If you want to send a million dollars on a Saturday, stable coins are probably the best way to do that. I think that you'll see interesting things like streaming micro payments and kind of some of these futuristic use cases. So it's either really big payments, really small payments, kind of at the edges. But I think across the continent and in a number of markets there, you could see actual mainstream adoption and usage of, of blockchains for all different types of payments that were really where blockchains start to displace cash. And I think that in many ways, they are global real-time networks that already exist that you can build on top of, which is easier than trying to go market by market and having central banks and governments build their own RTP rails, which you've seen there have been successful cases in Brazil and India. But there's still a long way to go. And so I tell everyone, it's just going to take time. And I think the combination of these things coming together, question that there will be value created, it's hard to predict who the winners are, but it takes many years for those types of changes to happen. To piggyback on what Kai was saying and, and really give a shout out to Visa for the innovative work that they've done in being that bridge. So speaking as a former fintech founder, as an entrepreneur, that credibility in for for startups in tagging along through a program like Visa Everywhere, you know, all, all the work that Visa's done with Visa Everywhere initiative, uh, Visa Direct, like all sorts of innovative programs have have made a huge difference for fintech founders around the world. And that bridge is, I think, imperative in for long-term success because having organizations like Visa that can go into those long-standing institutions or a room full of central bank governors and can share about the value of new technology and get their compliance teams comfortable and have a handful of fintech companies that they already work with. Like, that is something that those companies couldn't do themselves. And so I think we need more of those. And Visa has been a leader in that space for years. And I 
hope that they continue to do the same. But yeah, I, I've personally benefited from those and I really appreciate the work that they're doing in that space. Continuing to push the envelope and yeah, Kai's definitely leading that charge and I don't envy your role, Kai. I think I think there's definitely still a lot of minds to be changed or, or journeys to be handheld through. So yeah, shout out to that. So I'm going to actually ask Justin to say something real quick because we had a listener community event in Joburg and Justin, you said something really cool, which was, again, drawing parallels to what we're seeing in crypto now. And, and you described how the media industry was seen, new media. Could you, would you mind go, giving that spiel one more time? Well, I, I was saying how in the, the early days of the internet, right? And I guess it maps to Web 1, Web 2, Web 3. But in the early days of the internet, there were internet companies, right? And now every company is an internet company. And then during Web 2 and social media, there were a lot of new media companies or, or people in a new media role. And right now when you say new media, it makes you sound old, right? But I, I guess every company is already doing social media and, and, and digital marketing, all of these things. And I think the extent to which crypto becomes well penetrated will be indicative of us not talking about crypto companies anymore, kind of like AI as well, right? Where, where how AI is being absorbed into a lot of different kinds of companies and there's infrastructure underneath AI. But I think that, and I'd be interested to hear what you guys think, but I think that for crypto to be mainstream, we don't really want to be talking about crypto companies. We just want to be having those use cases be a part of commerce or be a part of payments or whatever it might be and not look at it as a distinctly separate thing. Yeah, like having the use case of UNHCR is able to disperse funds to refugees in in the Ukraine crisis immediately. We don't have, I don't have to talk all about what the fact that there's a layer one blockchain and and a protocol. Like I don't I don't care. You know, just just if we get to a point that Tori, you can just talk about it as like, yeah, we helped uh, UNHCR get money to people in need as quickly as possible. That's the dream. Yeah, that is the dream. I would just say, even on that point, it's it's interesting when I've yep. met a number of founders building on the continent, even if they aren't crypto companies per se, even if they don't operate or offer crypto products, to hear how they still may be using stablecoins in their corporate treasuries to store value, to move value, to pay suppliers. I think that's one of the best examples where you're going to have many different companies that are just going to incorporate these technologies for their own internal uses, even if the end product that they're offering to a consumer is, is has nothing to do with crypto. And I think that's the role that, that stablecoins can play is if you're starting a business that's a global business and you're outside the United States, you probably want to have some access to dollars. And it seems to be even more difficult over time for many startups to get dollar-based banking. So stablecoins are starting to become this kind of, it's it's the dollar-based bank account for emerging global startups from many of these markets. And that alone is, they're not a crypto company. It's just, it's every company needs financial services themselves to be able to operate. And so I think that's going to be one of the first use cases is just behind the scenes, sophisticated companies using these technologies themselves. And then as they start to use these technologies, then they'll say, okay, what can we build that we can provide and, and offer to consumers, abstracting away some of the complexity behind it. And just to tie a bow on that, I think it's obvious, but I'll say it anyway, right? The the demand for these types of use cases can only come from companies outside of the US, right? People don't concern themselves with access to dollars when they do business in dollars, but for everyone else, it's a, it's a really important opportunity. 
We're going to wind down. This is, I think I would, I'd really love to grab a glass of wine or beer, whatever, coffee with you guys. And I think we could talk for hours and hours about this. But every week we ask our guests to give us one or two recommendations of sources that they recommend our crypto at scale community to really about what gets you excited about crypto. So any recommendations that you, that you want to share? We'll start with Tori. Well, I strongly believe that there's no better teacher than your average user. Go talk to them without being creepy. Ask them how they get paid, how they manage their money, who they send money to and how often. Make sure they know that you're not trying to rob them or anything. But I found that people are people are actually quite open about that because they're proud of the little creative hacks that they do to retain their value. And, and they're very open about the things that frustrate them about their financial system. So that would be my number one recommendation is like, Go be out there, be in the real world, <laughs> then go look at crypto stuff. Yeah, on, on the crypto side, there's there's a lot at the intersection of blockchain and crypto and financial inclusion, which is kind of where I hang out. Organizations like the Alliance for Financial Inclusion, AFI, is, is a really good one. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that if you want to learn about Stellar, SDF publishes a ton of helpful resources. We're, we're really focused on real world utility. And so we do a lot of research in that space. We concentrate on policy and making it very easy to build on the Stellar network. Our CEO also has a, another fantastic podcast called Block by Block that showcases industry leaders at the intersection of crypto and the real world. Brilliant. Thank you. Kai, any, any recommendations? Anything that's getting you excited about crypto right now? First, what I recommend to, to everyone is just go on chain. Use crypto products. Try out wallets. Try out different blockchains. Try out different... Don't spend a lot of money doing it, but you can sign up for a wallet and get $5 of USDC and send it back and forth, or you can mint an NFT. There's just so many things that you can do, and it's very hard to understand where we are and how these technologies are progressing if you're not using these products. And I find that you have people who are in crypto, in the crypto community, and you ask them, how many wallets have you tried? They're like, oh yeah, I only use one wallet. I've used it for three years. It's just You have to continue to try these new technologies. And so that's that's the first thing that, and we do this internally. We go in and help executives set up their first self-custodial wallet and teach them how to mint an NFT. And you, you kind of see how far away we are. Whoa, that was harder than I thought. But you could track where the, the industry is going by using the products. So that's the first piece. And then the second is on-chain data is an amazing resource. And I think where we are today in terms of the, the tools and the dashboards and kind of what you can, can look at and monitor versus where we were last bear market, it's night and day. So shout out to Dune. We're huge fans of Dune and just the ability to, to create dashboards to then look at all the dashboards. There's a real community and discord. And so we have people who are learning SQL to do on-chain data analysis. And I feel like that just as a skill set. anywhere in the world, you have this, one of the most valuable data sets that you just have to learn how to query. <laughs> and there's an infinite amount of things that you could ask it. And so that's an amazing opportunity to just build a reputation and write queries, create dashboards, follow it. And so we track on-chain data very closely, learning how to do that at cross-chains, how are stable coins being used? What's the market share of Tether versus USDC? And so I believe in, in, in completely agree with Tori, go talk to people. If you talk to people about how they interact with money and payments in general, if you use the latest products and try them out, and if you go deep on on-chain data, 
there aren't that many people who actually do all three of those things on a regular basis. And so that really differentiates you and, and you can build a, a deep understanding and expertise on where it's headed. It's not orthodox for us to make recommendations, but I will make one because it ties into everything you guys have said and also ties into the event we had in Joburg this week. So Emerging on Chain is this is a new publication slash community that is releasing, de- basically they're demystifying the African crypto story with data, content, and intimate events. So that we, were, we we collaborated with them in Joburg for, for this event. A lot of reports we're seeing out of African crypto right now are a lot of hype and a lot of crap, to be honest. There's not, there's a lot of false numbers. You can easily, some of these reports, you can just easily fact check them using Dune, right? You can fact check them using like zapper.fi. There's so many things that they're getting wrong. And and I think Emerging On-Chain is doing a great job of of actually using real on-chain data and telling stories about crypto in Africa. So yeah, definitely check them out. Emerging On-Chain. Thanks, Gloria. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. But that wraps up today's discussion. Tori and Kai, thank you so much for joining us. We just gave our recommendations. Can you just share briefly where can people find out more about you and your companies? Kai, we'll let you go first. I'm on Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. Thanks. Tori? I'm Tori underscore samples on Twitter and at Stellar Org also on Twitter. And you can find us on Twitter at crypto at scale. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do hit that follow button on your favorite podcast app and share with a friend or a colleague who you think may enjoy it as well. Tori and Kai, thanks so much for joining us.